Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What are you up to on either Friday, August the 12th or Saturday, August the 13th? What about getting a group together and maybe doing a road trip? Coming up to Wodonga and or Aubrey, because I'm doing two shows up there with my very dear friend Helen Rose, a New South Wales policewoman. I'm going right outside my comfort zone big time because Helen and I talk very personally about our different paths to PTSD. But the result was the same because we overcame some major hurdles. It's not all doom and gloom. It's about giving hope to those who think there is no hope. Helen and I are testament to the fact that you can manage PTSD and life does get better. Uh, The show is called The Consequences of Murder. On Friday, it's at the Thirsty Crow in Wagga Wagga. On Saturday, it's at the SSSA Club in Aubrey and tickets are through Eventbrite. Uh, It's adults only and 7pm is the usual starting time. Okay, thanks and uh, look forward to seeing you, hopefully. Bye. Uh, Hello, and thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. And just a couple of things I'd like to ask you to consider. Firstly, my guests share their personal stories, which others may see differently. No one will see a situation the same. It's just human nature. Uh, Secondly, my podcasts aren't suitable for children and some adults for that matter. So please consider if it's right for you and contact Lifeline or any other support service if you find yourself affected by my subject matter. Don't you realise it's the other way around? It's not shocking that someone has done this and he is a pillar of society. He has built his whole life so that you think he is a pillar of society. He chose that job. He chose that volunteer role. He did that course. He hasn't just been grooming his intimate partner and immediate family so they don't suspect. He's been grooming all of us. Now, anything could happen today between my guest uh, and myself because she's got two kids at home from school. So just bear with us. Uh, If anything could happen, I'm sure it will, but we're uh, strapping ourselves in and hoping for the best. So, yes, let's get on with it while the kids are quiet. Uh, If you're a regular listener, you'll no doubt probably have heard my three-part interview with Georgia, who at 20 weeks pregnant with her first child, discovered that her then-husband had been grooming young girls on the internet. Georgia was thrown into a world that none of us ever want to be thrown into or could even imagine being thrown into. 
Remember Georgia telling us when she went to the court just after her then husband had been charged, not knowing anything about the circumstances and the only information that she was given was being handed a pamphlet by a policeman at court about partner speak. Today's guest is the CEO of that organisation, Partner Speak, Natalie Walker. What an amazing, wonderful organisation Partner Speak are. They are there for people like Georgia who felt so very alone, so frightened, confused and no doubt humiliated, embarrassed and shocked with the knowledge that her then husband had been arrested and charged with child exploitation offences. Partner Speak give those who find themselves in that unfortunate world hope and help in navigating the often complex and confronting system. They have forums which uh, help connect others who've walked a similar path. They've got chat facilities. They provide advocacy, support and advice. They provide you with an opportunity to be part of their community, sharing emotions and thoughts that only that community would really ever truly understand. Partner Speak are not counsellors, but others who have lived the experience. They've got lived experience none of us ever, ever want to have. So thanks for your time again today, Natalie, and for everything you do for those who are thrust into that very sad and confronting world and there's just such little support and information for them. And, And unfortunately, am I right in thinking that maybe you have lived experience in this world too. Is that right? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Narelle, and thanks for um, shining a light on this issue. Like, as you say, none of us ever want to experience it, but also none of us ever want to think about it. And you're helping us all think about it, talking to Georgia and talking with me today. Um, yeah, my lived experience was a really long time ago. It's actually coming up to um, 20 years um, this okay. June. Um, and at the time I discovered my then ex-husband was looking at child sexual abuse material. And it was, so 20 years ago was 2002. The world was very different then. How we use the internet was very different then. Um, Most of us had dial-up. Most of us shared a computer and an email address with our um, partner or household. And none of us had heard about child sexual abuse material. And I kid you not, back um, around 2002, um, magistrates, many magistrates believed this internet thing uh, was a fad that would pass. And so it was, it was very difficult for people who discovered that uh, someone close to them was involved in this crime uh, because we didn't even know then that like, it was it was still called child pornography back then and with magistrates' responses were he's doing what on the internet then um, even more so could people not imagine what they had discovered. Um, I became, I founded Partner Speak not immediately after my experience because like Georgia and the other non-offending partners whose experiences we'll touch on today, my life was turned upside down and I was in significant trauma and I was reaching out for help, help that wasn't available. 
Um, and alongside my discovery, law enforcement agencies in Australia were involved in a, a huge operation called Operation Auxin. They started on it back in 2002. The general public didn't find out about it until 2004, at which time it was leading media in um, Melbourne, at least, and I suspect other places in Australia, um, because they charged around about 200 Australian men at that time, um, which is still huge now, 18 years later. And I knew that roughly half of those men would have intimate partners and children. And I thought to myself, you know, if, if there was a natural disaster in Australia affecting 200 families, we would be doing something about it. Um, as I said, it wasn't long after my own discovery. So when it came on to the news, my reaction at that time was to like cry, run out of the room and want to, to vomit. Um, but then media started naming um, one of the in non-offending partners of one of the perpetrators and she wasn't a suspect at, at all. They just named her because of the kind of work that her and her husband did together. Um, it made for pretty gripping headlines and I thought oh, someone, you know, obviously my empathy went and horror immediately went to her and I thought someone needs to make this stop but because we were so unfamiliar with this crime type um, there wasn't the kind of outrage or even a ripple when media named her as there might have been with a different type of crime type that we're more familiar with and they kept naming her for several days in multiple media sources and then I was really realized if someone was going to stop them it hadn't happened and it seemed like it had to be me and I didn't have any particular skills or experience I was very young at the time and I was quite a you know junior kind of community worker but I rang some women's organizations and what I guessed were the right government departments and explained hey there's these bunch of families who are in trauma um, who probably aren't on your radar and in my early 20s I naively thought that they would say thanks Natalie for letting us know <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and that they would increase their eligibility criteria and that these families would be taken care of um, one of the gatekeepers on the phone in a bid to get me off the phone said let us know if you start something and that's when I did um, and so I started the first iteration of the online peer support forum in 2004, which we still have a very similar version of today. My best friend at the time came over and helped me set it up. And that was the very humble beginnings of Partner Speak back in 2004. Mm. Gee, Natalie, I, I don't know how... You Number one is I don't know how you got through that, but also I wonder how you deal with the harrowing and distressing stories that you must hear, I don't know, probably almost every day and how you manage your own emotions with 
that constant exposure to those dealing with the same sort of trauma that, that you did? How do you deal with that? Well, I think um, one of the things that helped me heal my own trauma, and I had no idea I was doing it at the time, but um, when I, I started an organisation, I started speaking out about it and without realising I started using my voice and telling my story, which is one of the tenets of the peer support model that Partners Speak is now built on. Um, and when I talk to our peer support workers, one of the things we all talk about often is imagine how different our lives would be if we had this kind of support at or near the time of discovery. And many of the people I work with who are talking to people every day and taking those calls at, at the time of deepest distress and discomfort are actually quite empowered and buoyed by the, the difference that they're making and the difference that we didn't have when we needed support. And the other thing that's built into our model, as you mentioned, that um, everybody at Partners Speak who provides support has that lived experience. And so our, our model is a model of um, peer support and peer support is based on mutuality rather than other therapeutic interventions, which might be based more on neutrality. And um, that being inherent within our model means that we're allowed to tell our stories. In fact, telling our stories and sharing our experience with the people that we're supporting is a mutual two-way thing. It's not just that we're the helpers swooping in. We're learning together and, and healing together alongside each other. And um, that connection, which is the, the first tenant of our peer support model, that goes both ways. And so when we're sitting with someone and we're connected to that person and we're being mutual, it's not just that other person that gets all that connection and mutuality. Um, and so yeah, the, the very way we do peer support at Partner Speak supports us in, in sitting in a, in a lot of discomfort with people. Mm. I can't imagine the discomfort. I, but I think you're right, just, and it's with anything, anybody that has a lived experience that you are sharing the same lived experience with, it is a very, very strong connection because you know the people on the other end of the phone or the other side of the desk or whatever it be, you know they get it. It would be very different to speak to somebody who has never been in that um, position. It just You just could never understand all the emotions. Well, and often that other person completely understandably is having their own personal reaction to the experience as well um, and, and grappling with how they're feeling about this horrific story that they're being told. Um, and it's not that in a peer support model that we, we don't have that and it's not that 
all the stories are the same. Of course, everybody's journey is is different, and every experience is is slightly different. Um, but that it it's it's an experience that we have had ourselves, and that we have spent time traveling through. And so I, I think often. Uh, the th- you know, there's so many layers in discovery and so many things that a non-offending partner or affected family member um, has to grapple with. But one of them is about how other people respond and counselling and supporting other people um, in our in our life as, as they process the horrific news. And so I think that's part of the value also um, of speaking to someone who has been through something similar. When you talk then about how people respond, I imagine that you'd get a lot of um, responses that were uh, the people are so shocked. Like, um, I don't know, this is is going to sound terrible, but somebody might say, are you sure? Mm. Or, you know, to try because they can't, um, uh, what's that word, they can't, figure it out themselves that this person that, you know, is a great, let's say a great bloke. He's always a great just, bloke. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. And people just, you know, the pillars of society and they just cannot get their heads around it. So do you have people, women that have experienced that? Like are you sure uh, you haven't made a mistake? Maybe he was watching, oh, I don't know, whatever the excuse is. Do you have that a fair bit or hear about that? So in domestic violence, as you would know, it's why didn't they leave? In sexual yes. assault, it's why were you wearing that or why did you walk that way home in that dark park? In yes. this space, it's how did you not know? And oh. that's that's the such a significant and enduring experience in all of this um, from the the moment of discovery and so rather than are you sure it's more are you sure you didn't know are you sure there wasn't hints and yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really um, curious that you use the term pillars of society because often the the media, um, go to pains when someone holds a position, um, a, a professional pr- position or something that we tend to, or a volunteer position, mm-hmm. football coach, teacher, um, doctor, those sorts of things that, that we associate positively. And for, uh, well, decades now, two of them, I've been saying, don't you realise it's the other way around? It's not shocking that someone has done this and he is a pillar of society. He has built his whole life so that you think he is a pillar of society. He chose that job. He chose that volunteer role. He did that course. Mm-hmm. He hasn't mm-hmm. just been grooming his intimate partner and immediate family so they don't suspect. He's been grooming all of us so we don't suspect so that we have some cognitive dissonance when he's charged and that we do say are you sure are you sure you didn't know and that we look at his partner instead of him and he's 
also he's been preparing, like, if it is written in the media one day, he wants them to write he was a good guy, he was a loving father, he coached the whatever team. It's all part, like, when we ask the partner or family member, how did you not know, um, they may have had no idea, no hint that anything was awry at all and that when police turned up on their doorstep, that was the first glimpse they got something wrong. Or maybe they thought something wasn't quite right, maybe he was cheating online and it was a tiny little hunch at best. And so they've got a tiny little hunch at best, whereas he's spending his whole life on not wanting to get caught. And so, like, when a non-offending partner says to me the same words, how did I not know, like, because he spent, he invested so heavily um, in you not knowing and the cost of you knowing to him was enormous and so you didn't stand a chance. And um, that's what I always want to say to non-offending partners and affected family members and also to the wider community. If anyone listening has ever asked either aloud or in their head, how did they not know, um, I challenge them instead to say, why is he doing that? Because we spend all our energy saying, how did you not know, to someone who's another victim in all of that. Mm. And that's... Like almost, like almost victim blaming in a way. Absolutely actually. victim blaming. Yeah, yeah. And then we spend, yeah. our, we spend our time blaming the victim, the, the victim instead of holding the perpetrator to account. Mm. I, I don't know how many times I have interviewed, and it's all women, I haven't interviewed a man and I'm quite happy to uh, for you know if, if that does happen I'm sure it does happen but I haven't interviewed anybody can I can I say something about gender um so people you, you'll notice that when I'm talking about the perpetrator that I'm consistently saying he and when I'm talking about the non-offending partner or the family member I'm saying they to include all genders so yes. this crime type is incredibly gendered, even more so than other types of sexual violence. And the reason that I'm willing to say he is because over 99% of perpetrators of um, crimes pertaining to online child sexual abuse material are male. Um, and that perpetrator's intimate partner, of course, can be any gender. And so Partner Speaks supports um, non-offending partners of any gender. And we also um, support other close affected family members. We started off, um, the reason we're called Partner Speak, that goes way back to our history, which started 20 years ago. And it goes way back to my lived experience that was 20 years ago. And so mm -hmm. I knew that the gap was for intimate partners. And so that's how Partner Speak started. But over the years, we've learned that, of course, it's not just his intimate partner that's harmed, it's any of his family members who are close to him. So we support the parents of perpetrators. Um, we, we've had um, husband and wives, parents of perpetrators come to our peer support groups. We support siblings we've supported adult children of the perpetrator who are now like 1920 and saying you know my dad 
did this. So we, we are for all affected family members and all genders, despite our name, Partner Speak. Mm. You know, it, it just makes me think, isn't it sad, a sad state of society that we have to have or we have an organisation like yours, but thank goodness we do because I've dealt with a number of people in the position that Georgia was or what year was where they just had nowhere to go because it's just such a a difficult subject, isn't it? It's confronting. It's, uh, It's something that most people don't want to think about. Absolutely. And it took me a long time um, to work out why in professional and community settings and possibly even the media too, it was harder for me to get traction with this than even some other taboos and um, horrific experiences. And I think I figured out what it is. I think the reason we say, how did you not know, is because we desperately need to believe I would know if it was me, if it was my husband or partner, brother, next-door neighbour, father, adult son, I would know he was involved in abusing children sexually under the same roof as me or in close proximity to me. And the minute we accept that maybe his intimate partner didn't know, we also have to accept that maybe I wouldn't know. Maybe I don't know what my partner's doing on his phone and that's Mm. terrifying. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting just uh, going back. The way that we've changed our, the way we speak about child abuse material now, and I might just uh, note here that we don't call it child pornography anymore. Do we? Because, um, and I suppose you would uh, agree with this or you'd know yourself that pornography has um, um, legal legal pornography involves a a contract and consent. Um, Someone, a, a, a sex worker, is being paid for content. And um, with a child, there can never be a contract and there can never be consent because whenever there is anything remotely sexual happening that happens to a child, it is abuse. It is not pornography. It is not a business model, um, even though there are many, many companies and platforms that do very well financially out of child sexual abuse material. And so whenever we were talk whenever we are talking about images or, or videos or live streaming of um, children being sexually harmed, um, that is always child sexual abuse material, material child sexual abuse material or child abuse material. It has nothing to do with pornography. Yes, and and that was, um, you put it a lot more succinctly than I did because what I was trying to get at was that pornography depicts, say, uh, consent, it it depicts pleasure, and child pornography is so far from that, and that's why we don't use the word child and pornography together. It's 
now we use it as child abuse material or, as you said, child sexual abuse material? Is that what you said? Yeah, look, child sexual abuse material is used more often in some other countries. And I, in, in Australia, we most often say child abuse material. I like to say child sexual abuse material because I like to remind people what we're talking about. And what we're talking about, if I can be really direct, Narelle, is we're talking about children, even babies, being raped and videoed, often on demand for the sexual gratification of adults. That's what child sexual abuse material is. Yes, and I'd have to agree with you there, Natalie, because one of, and again, I'm going to be very open and upfront here, but one of the worst child abuse videos I ever saw was a little six-month-old baby. And it's something, so I want to say those words as well. It is not just, and I'm not demeaning child abuse, but child sexual abuse is exactly what it is. It is, yes, it's something that has stayed with me. Well, obviously, how, how could it not? But, to, and, you know, we talk about the victims of uh, child abuse material, say the the, the um, affected family member and the parents and the siblings, whatever, but we should never, ever forget that the the the, the there are other victims and they are the victims that have been used to make that child sexual abuse material. Absolutely. And the people who are most aware who the primary victims are, other than the primary victims, other than the children themselves, are the affected family members of the perpetrator. Because if we weren't aware we wouldn't walk out of the room vomiting and crying when we hear about child sexual abuse material offences on the media. And that is the the heart of where our trauma comes from and it's the heart of why this is such a distressing and traumatic situation is because we're cognizant of what's happening to those children and we've just learned that someone we loved and trusted, someone who's in our life, is perpetrating that harm and as I said everybody's journey is different of course Um, but I know for me 20 years ago um, one of the things that I did was to read the stories of those child victims and um, to read them in the first person and to try and understand exactly what this crime was and exactly what my ex-partner had done and exactly who this was harming and how. And we've had people come to Partners Speak and their families have minimised their experience and they have said, you know, this isn't about you, this is about the children. Um, And, of course, we know that it's about the children and it's the knowing that um, that traumatises us. And many people who come to Partner Speak, like Georgia, like myself, like our peer support workers with lived experience, now that we have come so up close to child sexual abuse material, we are the biggest advocates for those children and the, the biggest advocates for more children not being harmed. And that's a big motivation of why we do this work. You really wouldn't need any more motivation, would you? No. Poor, 
poor little darlings. So Natalie, can you explain what a typical phone call might be when somebody's just found out that their partner or affected family member is a perpetrator of this type of crime and, and what type of, yeah, how would that phone call go? Um, oh, like that, like how I just didn't know what to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. what, what do you say um, when when something like this happens? Um, often there, as I said, everyone's story is different, but often there's no notice and there's no flags. Often the way we find out is because law enforcement has turned up in our homes and seized all electronic devices, our own personal phone, our own laptop, our kids' playstations, um, linen off the kids' beds, um, have, have left a bit of a trail of destruction as they have found what they have needed to find. Um, often people are shaking. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to expect. They one thing that is particularly horrific for people is if they have children and they don't know if their children um, have been harmed in all of this. I think people turn up to that first conversation with Partner Speak in all different ways. You know, um, some well-known responses to trauma are, fight, flight, or freeze. And so we see all of those. Um, We see people who are in the fetal position on the floor and they lose track of time. They don't know if they've been there for days or weeks when they call us. And then we also speak to people who are really pragmatic and are about what needs to be done. And ultimately, everybody is quickly shoved into that about what needs to be done because they don't have a choice. Um, Law enforcement might tell them about sentencing. Um, Their intimate partner's bail conditions are often in the family home. So the non-offending partner has to work out where they're going to go, where the, the kids are going to go. And so often it's a combination of these things. It's the, cra- the crisis and the chaos and the fetal position and the shaking and the not being able to make words, but also doing all of that and actually having to make the words and do the things and meet the requirements of child protection and get to court and work out where you're going to live if he has had bail conditions at home. Often huge um, financial implications. I think the thing is with this is that it, it has all the experiences of any other sudden relationship or family breakup um, on top of this enormous distressing um, discovery and so the financial implications and so you know there are issues of um, if he was the the breadwinner and um, does his partner now need to get a job and and maybe his partner hasn't had a job long time because maybe they've been predominantly doing childcare. maybe housing is at risk because mm. Uh, child protection has told the protective parent that they need to get their children out of the home or maybe as I mentioned he's been bailed to the home and the 
Mm -hmm. It's just um, so much. It's like life has just been blown up because life has just been blown up. And I think um, that first call to partner speak reflects that. And so I think the, the purpose of that first call is often what we talked about before is connection, is when this happens, you know, when we think about child sexual abuse material, we think about the crimes that we've read in the media. But when we read those crimes, never once do we stop and think, oh, I wonder if he had a partner. I wonder if he had kids. So when this does happen to someone, they feel like they're the first person in the world that it happens to. And then they ring partner speak and someone else that it has happened to answers the phone. And um, and so immediately there's that connection. And obviously that connection is not a magic wand that makes it all go away all at once. Mm-hmm. But it is a, a, a small anchor and a small moment um, in that initial crisis and in that initial crisis comes so much chaos. And so I guess in terms of the type of support and services that Partner Speak offers, that our peer line, which we've been talking about people calling up, that's one of them. And the peer the we call it a peer line, not a helpline, because of what we talked about earlier about connection and mutuality. Um, we're not there to help people. We're there to learn together and travel together and to share our experiences. So, yes, the um, peer line is really important to people in early days of discovery, but it can stay important at different times in the journey. Some people just use it in those first weeks and months of discovery. Some people ring every month or two for the next few years when big milestones come up, um, court dates, um, moving house, new relationships, all, all sorts of things. And so the, the peer line isn't necessarily just for that initial crisis. That connection can be valuable indefinitely. We also provide peer support groups and um, pre-COVID they were in person. Um, the last couple of years they've been online peer support groups. Um, the peer support forum that we started back in 2004 is still really important to people and the anonymity of that is really important and so people that might hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Not be ready to make a call or come to a group. What's particularly valuable is often reading other people's stories. And so knowing that someone is not alone and that they can connect even without even having to write a word. And we support people through criminal justice processes only in Victoria at the moment, but we're working on that. So we have been with people to court if they're going to sentencing as a way to learn more about the crimes that their partner committed. Um, We've been with people in police stations when there's been an arrest by appointment or at other times. Um, And we're, we're flexible. And so if there's a peer support or advocacy that we haven't done yet and we're after it within our resources and capabilities, we'll try to say yes. So just going back to the when you help people at police stations, are you contacted by the police or are you contacted by the um, aggrieved or the affected family member? Um, both. Um, in Victoria, because we've historically only been in Victoria and we're currently rolling out a a national pilot. So we do some things in other states, but not in the same way as we do in Victoria. Um, So in Victoria, we are well known by VicPol and by the Jacket, the Joint Anti-Child Exploitation Team. And police can use their internal referral service to refer directly to us Um, and obviously they need consent of the person but that that is really important because it's one thing to be handed a flyer during a warrant and losing it not remembering what it is losing it putting it to the bottom of your bag wondering who gave it to you whatever obviously that flyer is not going to be the most important thing on that day and so the value of a referral direct from law enforcement to us is that um, the family member consents to partner speak ringing them back and so even if they forget to ring us um, we can ring them and in terms of when we've been um, in stations, um, yeah, it, it's been through that VicPol referral process. And with court, it's often we've gotten to know someone by that time that we might have 
gotten to know them through the peer line over some months and then they've asked for support to attend court. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a comforting, I suppose is the wrong word, but what a great initiative for you to be able to go and uh, sit with them, just to sit with somebody in a police station where they have to deal with, as you talk about, this crisis and chaos. I'm just so glad that the police are contacting you or that you are on their referral system. I just don't know, and it's probably for another day, but what happened to um, our dear friend Georgia and why, how she fell through the cracks. I, I hope that, and that this is not a, obviously a criticism of you, it's a criticism of the system, how Georgia can, somebody in Georgia's position can fall through those cracks and not have any support. Oh, my heart broke for her when I heard that. Yeah, me, me too, yeah. absolutely. It was. I bet it did, <laughs> yeah. I must admit I'll never forget a phone call that I took uh, when I was at Bendigo where a woman had come across a hidden video camera in her 16-year-old daughter's bedroom and discovering a whole lot of videos of her daughter on a recording device in her husband's cupboard. It was her second marriage. They'd only been married maybe six months. And I've comforted, unfortunately, uh, many distressed people in my career, but I will never forget that woman and her absolute shock and horror at what she discovered and also my response as well because I I left that, I couldn't stop thinking about that woman for weeks. Mm. Just the, when you talk about crisis and chaos, that was exactly what it was but she she knew she had to get out there, and I think that that night she got out of the house. Uh, but I will never forget that. I just thought that would turn, obviously, turn your life around. Oh, it was terrible. Yes. Oh, the things, the things that we see as police, and just as you know, like yourself, you know, the things that you witness and you, uh, the experiences that you hear about. It's people don't. We don't talk about it enough. It's a very, very difficult and confronting subject to talk about, but I think we have to. And I understand why people don't want to talk about it. Like I had never thought. Me too. I had never thought about this um, until it happened to me. And I think the thing is we're meant to be horrified and so when you and I say, we want people to talk about it. We don't want them to become familiar and comfortable and okay with it. Um, no. We, if that, I, it's been twenty years, and I am still deeply distressed by what we're doing to children online. Um, and there would be something gravely wrong with me if I wasn't. And about about once a year I probably the the enormity of the harm being done um hits me and again I think if it didn't that's when we begin to worry but what we need to do is separate our horror with the harm and our horror with the crime from how we respond to the primary victims and the the secondary victims I think the message that we need to get out there is that 
you are not alone. And that's why I think it's so important to talk about partner speak and to talk about those organisations that do help people in, I imagine, the worst you know, day of their lives or the worst days of their lives. And if we don't talk about it, people uh, would probably feel, well, not probably, would feel very alone and we don't want anybody to feel alone in a circumstance like that. We need people to know that there are people like yourself. Oh, Natalie, I take my hat off to you and your your people at Partner Speak. Yeah. Oh, it would be, it would be very. I'm getting all. <laughs> it's it's hard to describe just the effect that well, it has on me, let alone people that have never experienced it before. And I think the thing is, Narel, is we are you. We're not different. There's no red light that um, our partner had on their head. We're not uh, a different group of people that um, you could pick out in the community. And um, statistically pre-COVID, somewhere between 4 to 5% of all men had deliberately accessed child sexual abuse material at some time. And um, I'm not sure how that statistic has been impacted by COVID because I know that CSAM reports in Australia alone increased by around 127% during the lockdowns. But it means if we have this volume of people offending, then, and we know that half of them have an intimate partner and children, that that we are you. There, there are people in your social circle or professional circle or life somewhere um, who are non-offending partners, whether they know it or not yet. And so I think when we talk about what do affected family members go through and what do affected family members need, um, I think we need to do the very hardest thing. And the very hardest thing is the most important thing is to imagine it was happening to us and to ask how would I feel on that day and that's that's what we people can't allow themselves to ask in order to protect themselves um, and and then as a community and as a society and as a workplace and as people at the school gates as neighbors who are reading the media then we can respond in a way that is more human and mm. stigmatizing and stop blaming the wrong person in these crimes. Mm. Do you find many partners or affected family members can forgive or do forgive the perpetrator? I don't imagine it's that easy to just turn off a switch with a person that you've loved and built a life with. The thing is when our relationship dissolves because of this, we're not allowed to grieve. I said earlier that when the relationship dissolves, we have to deal with all the normal end of relationship things, whether it be financial, housing, um, children, all the big things you have to deal with when a relationship dissolves. Um, but because of why the relationship has 
dissolved or changed for the people who do stay. We're not allowed to grieve the relationship. It all becomes about the crime and our friends and family and media are all talking about what he did and we don't even give ourselves permission I think to grieve the relationship because we're dealing with the fallout of what he did and um, one of the things that we know about child sex offenders is that they're a massive suicide risk and um his partner knows that as well. So at the time that his partner has, you know, all these things that we've just talked about, um, had their life blown up, had, you know, been in this trauma, is dealing with trying to keep their kids safe. His partner also knows, probably because practitioners and professionals have told them that he's at a suicide risk. And so his partner might be wanting him out of the world, out of his life, might even say in passing, oh, I could kill him. And that is the person who is responsible for keeping him alive. And yeah, of of course, we've had a life together with this person. And that's also part of the, well, I can't speak for other people, but for me, that was part of the trauma that it was the juxtaposition between my life with this person and what I had experienced with them and the knowledge of the offence was really confusing and jarring. And I then started to say, well, if he could do this, um, what do I know about anything? What do I know about the the whole world? Um, And so, yeah, a lot of people do talk about the difficulty of how do you just turn off a switch for someone that you've loved, been with sometimes for many years, sometimes had children with? Um, And some people, most people hold him to account and grapple with that at the the same time. Um, Some people hold him to account and leave. Some people hold him to account and stay. And I think it's really complicated why people stay. Um, You know, we talked about the financial implications of moving and housing and those sorts of things, the pressures of how it, it is really difficult for people to leave during domestic violence. Um, And all those same things apply here. And some people also have a sense of responsibility that now I know about this, um, I'm the best positioned person to help him change. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that, that, that they feel that they could help him sort of like to support him is that what you mean I think that's um a possibility um look I I would say that I think what's really important is that it's not the responsibility of the non-offending partner or any family member to help someone in this situation that person is um accountable to themselves they knew what they were doing when they got involved in child sexual abuse material 
and they need to be accountable for stopping that. And there are avenues that if they wanted to stop before they started, um, they could access those avenues. And I know some partners do feel guilty and that question of how did I not know is something that they ask themselves. Um, There is no guilt and no responsibility in this situation for a non-offending partner or other affected family member. Natalie, I know you say that, but wouldn't that be, and I, God, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but wouldn't that be a normal question that somebody would ask that has been thrown into this world? I'm not asking them why, but wouldn't you ask yourself? Uh, well, maybe I am. Well, maybe, Narelle, maybe that's part of what we can do here because often our internal voices are fed by cultural norms and society's yes. voices. And so yeah. maybe if everybody listening to this podcast commits to changing that narrative and um, when they do hear about a couple or a family that someone is involved with child sexual abuse material and they they want to say, did their partner know, that everybody listening makes a commitment and says that they will ask why did he do that instead? And then if we as a society change that dominant narrative, then mm. we're reducing the trauma experienced by family members because we did some research back in 2015 with um, RM, RMIT University. Uh, it was Dr. Mark Liddell and um, Dr. Carolyn Taylor. And one of the things that they found is that there's the initial trauma of discovery, but then there's a snowballing effect of compounded trauma in terms of how everyone else responds to this. And so if that that's the bit um, we, you know, as a society, you and me and your listeners, we can't change that men are harming people in this way necessarily. But we can change what the dominant narrative is and we can change what we think and say when we hear this. And um, that will actually reduce the trauma and distress experienced by innocent family members in this situation. Hmm. Yeah, as you say, it is. It's about changing the narrative, and a bit like with Georgia, I hated asking it, but I was asking on behalf of other people, of listeners, as you know, the, a question a lot of people ask is, "Why didn't you leave?" That is such an offensive question, but I get so many responses, uh, and I think what you're saying is we need to change the narrative also with women um, in in this situation that it's about the perpetrator, not about the, the again, going back to victim blaming. Yeah. Uh, look, look, there were many points, talking about Georgia, there were many points that um, she made which shocked and disappointed me greatly, I assume you too. Absolutely. But one being that Georgia wasn't provided with any information or updates on what had happened uh, with her then husband and added to that was the fact that police had executed a search warrant at her house and searched her home without advising her. I'm aware that you're about to begin or you've begun training and conducting workshops across Australia, which is just the best news. <laughs> Can you share with us who 
uh, these workshops uh, are targeted towards and some of the, oh, I don't know, situations I suppose that you'll be addressing in these workshops because I'm hoping that stories such as George's response or lack of uh, will be addressed in your training package. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I am horrified about um, poor George's experience, especially since her ex-husband's bowel conditions meant um, that he had to stay in a home that he shared with with her and, and Georgia wasn't informed. Um, mm-hmm. And, yes, absolutely, it, it won't just be stories such as Georgia's that are going to be addressed in the upcoming training, but actually Georgia's story, um, um, she has like, quickly connected with her after hearing her on your program um, and the law enforcement agencies across Australia will be hearing from Georgia um, directly. and Oh, really? Absolutely. Oh, how I didn't know that. How good is that? Um, I interviewed her yesterday. Oh, really? Oh, I'm so thrilled. Oh, that is... Oh, that makes my oh my heart sing. <laughs> and and Narelle, now now you've got the answer to how can we do this work, right? Yeah, the, the experience you are having right now. Oh, gee, Natalie, that could almost bring me to tears. That is just so <laughs> it's, lovely. <gasps> it, it's uh, it's about being part of the change, and you are part of the change now, and so is is Georgia. Um, so. Earlier, I said that we're predominantly in Victoria and um, we have a pilot program funded through Proceeds of Proceeds of Crimes Act, oh, which means right. we can offer some things Australia-wide. And so in terms of supporting family members, um, we can now officially take calls on our peer line and our online peer support forum, our web chat and our online peer support groups are now open to people throughout Australia. Yeah. Um, face-to-face is still reserved for Victoria. And in terms of training workshops, we're going state by state across Australia, working with the specialist law enforcement agencies to start with. So the joint anti-child exploitation teams in each state, um, the local police in each state who are specialised and and deal with sexual offences, Australian Border Force and, uh, yeah, the law enforcement specialists who deal with child sexual abuse material as part of their work. And um, look, simplistically, what the training is, is I get to stand in front of a room of law enforcement members who are doing this work and share the voices of people like Georgia with them Mm -hmm. and tell them that these are the things that affected family members have said that law enforcement has done really well. This helped them during their week of discovery and during the investigation and and so forth. Mm -hmm. And um, please do more of it. 
And the other thing I will be sharing from affected family members like Georgia, uh, these are the things that happened when I interacted with law enforcement that actually compounded my trauma and made things much worse. And then these are the recommendations that affected family members have of what could have helped during that time. And um, I'm going to share with law enforcement um, a little bit about trauma and and how it affects people and what are some ways that law enforcement can still do their primary job, which isn't to be peer support worker or a support worker, but that they can uh, apply a little bit of what we know about trauma in that situation. Mm. Oh, I can't stop thinking about Georgia being... (laughs) Being like almost well, a spokesperson in a way, you know. When she con- oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and you know, when she contacted me, she said, "I don't know why. I just, you know, I don't know where this will go, but I want to tell my story." And I just think that is why I do what I do. Oh, yeah, I can't get over it. Um, it's, it's working. It's working, Muriel. <laughs> yeah. And something you said um, earlier about when you did listen to lots of people in distress during your career, you said something which I have heard echoed by many, many police throughout Australia, mm-hmm. um, which is that, you know, you never went home at the end of the day thinking about the perpetrator, but you often went home not being able to stop thinking about his intimate partner yep. or affected yep. family member. And I have to say that law enforcement back when I started, like in 2004, have always been the stakeholders, the, the people who have known why partner speak is needed and why people like Georgia need support because mm. they are the ones leaving the family home with the non-offending partner in the the fetal position. And so um, until recently when we were just funded in Victoria, I would get requests from law enforcement all over the country saying, can you do a partner speak in our state? Can you come and mm. talk to us? Mm. And so now we can. Oh, God, it is. Yeah, it's music to my ears, music to a lot of people's ears. Uh, And look, just uh, we better uh, think about closing because those kids have been very, very good and I feel any moment now it's just going to explode because they're going to get bored, Mum. (laughs) Um, With all due respect, with, with what Georgia was going through on the day that she attended court, as you very, very rightly highlighted before, a pamphlet, can get really easily discarded, it can get lost, not even read because there is so much stuff going on. Do you have a long-term goal of being present at court, for instance, when the perpetrator's family attend, a bit like court, how court network works? Is is that a long-term plan or something along those lines? Um, if I had a magic wand, um we would be connected with people before even court, before sentencing. So my big goal for Partner Speak and for Australia is that within 24 hours of discovery, every affected family member knows that Partner Speak exists. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they don't need to take us up on it, but like 
if we have a friend or colleague in need, um, we we know about Lifeline and how to find the, the phone number and connect someone with that. And so this goal is a big part of the reason why Partner Speak works so closely with law enforcement because they're, they're often the ones, um, if there's a warrant and arrest, they're the ones that are there at the time that the non-offending partner finds out. And that's why the police referral in Victoria is is so important to us um, because then we can reach out to people in in their first week um, and then we would be able to offer support, you know, over the peer line immediately in that week and as they go through their journey, sentencing and um, those sorts of things. And as we deliver the training across Australia, one and, and now that we can take calls and support people throughout Australia, we hope to negotiate with law enforcement in each state to replicate that referral direct from law enforcement to Partner Speak so that people can find out about us earlier. Mm. At the moment, we are still <laughs> very small and um, are far from having the resources of being in every court. But one of the things that we do is partner with organisations like Court Network and provide them with training. Mm. And so that if they come across someone in the court, hopefully they will be informed and be able to tell people about Partner Speak. Yeah, it's just getting the word out, isn't it? Like you say, look how far Lifeline has come in the last, I don't know, 20 years. Like that's the first thing everyone that a lot of people think of oh lifeline because it's just it's everywhere it's been so well uh, promoted look I'm going to uh, let you get back to uh, your children but just my last uh, comment or question really is that uh, I read somewhere that partner speaker involved in some world first research with um, the university in New South Wales about the uh, intersection with domestic violence and child abuse material can that's pretty that is scary stuff uh, can you tell us a little bit about that yeah um, absolutely so it's University of New South Wales um, research um, but it was motivated by an evaluation that they did about 18 months ago on partner speak and by evaluation that means they talked to about 53 people, 53 affected family members, um, a bunch of stakeholders and a bunch of peer support workers. And yes, they evaluated our service and the impact that we were having, Mm -hmm. but it also served as um, a really critical piece of qualitative research and showed where child sexual abuse material intersects with other issues such as domestic violence. There are so many things that Partner Speak is involved in that is a world first um, and that's because this is, it's, it's not because this isn't prevalent, like we've already talked about the statistics of how prevalent this crime is, um, but it's because it's something we don't want to think about or talk about. And before Partner Speak existed, there was nothing in Australia. There was no research, there was no organisation, there was no policy, and so these people didn't exist. And so research such as um, 
Michael Salter and Delaney Woodlock are doing at University of New South Wales right now um, is really important in um, shining a light on these issues. Um, I have lobbied for research like this for some time. I'm concerned due to what I know about domestic violence and what I know about lethal risk. So in domestic violence, when we're screening for lethal risk, one of the things we look for is how far down the trajectory of dehumanisation and objectification of women and children is the perpetrator Um, because when he's able to lift a gun to someone's head, it's not necessarily the gun that is the most lethal thing there. It's the fact that the perpetrator has so objectified someone that they can do that. And so we don't have data on on this and this is why this research is so important but I hypothesize that potentially if someone is involved in child sexual abuse material in particular live streaming and producing they are so far down the trajectory of objectification and dehumanization because how could you demand that be done to a child otherwise and so I'm quite fearful that when there's a coexistence of domestic violence and child sexual abuse material, that there is quite a serious lethal risk there that um, we're so far not considering. And um, as far as I know, the United States is the only country in the world that asks about pornography use in their domestic violence risk assessments. And one of the things that I would like to see in Australia is that... um, in the the standard risk assessment frameworks across Australia for domestic violence is that we also have a question around child sexual abuse material and so that we can start collecting that data and see if there's anything we need to do differently to protect people. That's fascinating because I know that when I was a policewoman, there was a form called an L17 regarding all these uh, questions that you had to answer after you had attended or been advised of a a family violence, domestic violence incident. And I remember it used to take literally hours. Mm -hmm. But I don't ever recall there being any question about pornography. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Frightening but interesting. Well, Natalie, those children have been little angels, so I think uh, we quit while we're ahead. Uh, Thank you so much for helping uh, those who feel like they've got nowhere to go or feel they've got no one who understands. I hope by listening to this podcast it might give someone out there uh, somewhere and someone to turn to. And thank you so much for giving uh, Georgia a voice and not just Georgia but everybody that has been in that awful position. It What you are doing is just blows my mind. It's fantastic. Uh, how, how and where can people contact Partner Speak? Um, 
Thanks so much, Narelle. Um, I think Georgia has her own voice. Um, Partner Speaker and I just provided um, a microphone um, to, to amplify that. Yeah. And um, while, while I am gracious um, for your, your thanks and your support, um, I also want um, to invite everyone who is listening um, to join in the advocacy because, um, as, I, as I said earlier, there's the, the trauma of discovering the offence and then there's the trauma of how everybody responds. And so... If everybody who is listening works to reduce the stigma and the taboo and the shame that is experienced by affected family members, then their trauma doesn't need to be compounded. And so I just invite everybody to um, to not be part of that stigma and to, to help reduce the trauma experienced by families. Um, people affected family members who would like support from PartnerSpeak can call us on our peer line, which at the moment is open three days a week. And those opening hours are on our website, which is always up to date. So the peer line is 1300 590 589. And our website is www.partnerspeak.org au and i suspect you might also have um law enforcement that listen as well narelle so if anyone in law enforcement or the community sector is interested in those training workshops that we um, talked about they can also get in touch through our website I will be promoting that. Yes, I do have uh, a couple of police. I, I, <laughs> I think it's a fair few. I'm, I, I don't really know, but I know there's a fair few that listen. So I will be promoting uh, Partner Speak as much as I possibly can. Thanks so much. Thank you again, Natalie. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Mira. It's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a rating and even a review and please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A-T-R-E-O-N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.